felt like it was this vicious cycle where I couldn't really get anywhere, but I was absolutely killing myself trying to make other people's dreams come true and completely ignoring what I wanted to do. This episode of I Digress Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a kick-ass insurance company that believes people who get shit done should benefit from their hard work. So if you're a runner, cyclist, crossfitter, vegetarian, yogi, skier, or whatever else you enjoy doing to stay healthy, get shit done and head over to healthiq.com slash iDigress for more info. Welcome to episode 14 of I Digress Podcast. I'm Arul Chanel. I'm excited to bring you this episode in the heart of the Winter Olympics. I don't know about you, but there are a few things that get me more jazzed than watching athletes who have honed their craft to the point that they are invited to represent their country on the world stage. It's pretty fucking awesome. If you really think about it, besides the Olympics, what other platform can induce a flare-up every four years of an unbridled desire to pick up curling? With that said, I'm stoked to bring you today's story. Our guest is Whitney Powell, and as we go along through her journey, I think you'll have a better understanding of what makes people who are devoted to their athletic pursuits truly special. Let's begin. Who is Whitney Powell? I am a sponsored athlete and adventurer that travels all seven continents, shooting video content and social media content for tourism boards, pro and Olympic athletes, tour operators, and race directors. So I go on crazy and wild adventures on all seven continents. Sounds pretty badass, right? This is going to be fun. So what does Whitney hope we get out of today's episode? I tend to dive in headfirst to things that I'm kind of afraid of doing or that sound like I'm way in over my head or that are a little bit scary. And I certainly fail plenty of times, or if, if you want to call it failing, <laughs> but I'm not afraid to try things. And I really hope that somebody listening who maybe has an idea or a goal that they really want to try or shoot for really goes for it. And, you know, the worst that happens is it doesn't work out the exact way that you envision it. But you can't say you didn't try and you don't go through life wondering what ifs. What ifs? God, they suck. You've got to love the tone that Whitney set for this episode. So where did her sense of purposeful pursuit come from? My parents were both lawyers. They actually uh, work in the same law firm with their own practice. So having to convince my parents that I wanted anything or wanted to do anything was always a process because when you're trying to convince two lawyers, that you want to do something, you've got to show up with your facts and your arguments. <laughs> so being prepared to come into a fight, you know, with why I wanted to do something and how to back it up was kind of part of what I did growing up, which sounds really funny. But even as a five-year-old, when I was trying to get my dad to buy me a pony, which actually did end up happening, I know I get made fun of for that, but I had to present a book of facts, figures, data, and you know, how I was going to take care of this horse. <laughs> Eventually it worked out and I learned how to argue for what I wanted pretty darn young. So through all of that, they took us traveling a lot and they were really, really adventurous. We would do things like get backpacks and go out to Alaska for three weeks. And they would be like, yeah, just grab some backpacks. We're going to go backpacking. And we would just go out and do it. So we were definitely trailblazers growing up. We were really active, really adventurous. Pretty young, they took us to some pretty awesome places, you know, Morocco, Hawaii, uh, the wilderness in Alaska and Canada, and, I mean, just really, really neat places. So like, we were not ever doing typical 
family vacations or anything. You know, we were doing road trips and, you know, staying in the car and camping and just really, really outdoorsy, adventurous stuff. That really, I think, helped kind of shape where I wanted to take things later on. And also uh, keeping us in sports, too, which was a huge, huge part of growing up. So um, I'm actually a middle child, so I have a younger brother and an older sister, and all of us were athletes. So my parents had us in sports really, really young. I started off swimming. I showed jumped horses for 20 years, water polo, soccer, and just being competitive pretty young. So they never pushed anything on us. It was really us that really wanted to be out there and competing, and so sports, and travel and adventure was really just a part of who we were growing up, which was really, really neat. So my brother actually was the first one to get into rowing, which, you know, we'll we'll come into play a little bit more later. But I actually wanted to get into that as my brother and a few of my other friends started getting into rowing, which really took every one of my travel and adventure and, and kind of kind of my competitive spirit to the next level. So that was the catalyst. I think for a lot of things in my life that was that was really really amazing. So sports always played a really really important part of what we did and um we were in southern California so we had a lot available to us. So we were pretty lucky. We could be outside all the time as you know if you have ever been to southern California or if you are from southern California it's pretty much 70 to 80 degrees year round. I got really really lucky with how things were set up for me, I guess. So we were we were pushed, but not to a point where, you know, it was kind of like the the crazy stage parents or anything. <laughs> so it, it was really, really fun. We had a lot of opportunities, and I think all three of us absolutely jumped on them. And I think the sports and the travel and the way that they kind of made us fight for what we wanted rather than telling us what we needed to do was a really, really good catalyst for kind of part two of uh, my life when I went into college. Whitney was lucky, no doubt. To have parents that were so supportive and who impressed on her some tremendous characteristics is a blessing. But it was up to Whitney to embrace it and to use those skills to thrive. And thrive she did. One of the ways this manifested itself was through sport. In high school, I was primarily swimming, playing water polo, and show jumping horses. But my brother started getting into rowing, and he was younger. So at this point, I was actually finishing up high school and going into college. And so the very, very end of high school, um, I had a couple of friends that were like, Whitney, you should really try rowing. We have so much fun. We're at the beach every day. You know, we're, we're out on the water. It's fun. It's fantastic. And I was like, well, that sounds really cool. I would love to try it. So I went to the tryouts for the crew team and went through the, you know, two weeks of of these kind of grueling tryouts and you're sitting on the erg, which is the rowing machine. You're running, you're rowing, you're getting in boats and stuff. And at the end of these two weeks, I was one of three people that did not make the team. And I was like, what? What in the world? Like, I was not tragic. I wasn't terrible. Like, I didn't stand out as like a horrific athlete. I already was a a pretty darn good swimmer and, you know, a championship horseback rider and stuff. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. What I learned, which did not even occur to me at the time, I don't know if you've ever seen rowers, but they're really tall. I am 5'2". So (laughs) my opportunity to join the crew team as a rower was 
more limited, I guess, than I thought when I signed on to try out. So basically, I was offered two options. One, either become a coxswain, or two, don't be on the team. Like, it's the summer before I'm heading off to college. This is kind of ridiculous. I'm not going to pick up a sport. Like, you know, I don't need to pick up a whole new thing. So rowing stalled in high school. But wait, there's definitely more to this story. So long story short, I start college. I'm here in Newport Beach again, and I get roped into signing up for the crew team again. And I was like, okay, well, let me give this another shot. And why did I try being a coxswain? I'll see what it's all about. You know, I'll give it a try. And was instantly put on the women's team because, you know, when you sign up for women's sports, they put you there. And went through a few months and really kind of started to get to like it. I really liked being at the beach every day. I mean, I was always a water person. Again, one thing my parents always did with us was take us sailing. So I was really, really familiar with being out on the water and nautical terms and boating terms. So I was really, really familiar with that. After a few months, though, I started to notice that I liked being around the women less and less and less and noticed that the guys' team was actually really attractive and they were winning things. So I actually ended up moving to the boys' team and knew that I was kind of jumping into something a little bit scary, but at the same time was like, well, I'm not really afraid. You know, if if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Like, I'll come back to the women's team. It ended up being the best decision I ever made. It really, I think, set the stage for so many things in life that became catalysts for other things and really set a foundation for being gutsy, for gaining incredible, incredible leadership skills, for teamwork, for discipline. I mean, you talk about a disciplined sport, rowing is your sport. You need to be there early, you've got to be prepared, you've got to work out, and everything shows on race day. So if you don't do the work, everyone knows. So it's kind of one of those things like if one person doesn't pull their weight, literally, The whole thing falls apart. And I really started learning, you know, what it meant to be dedicated to a craft, you know, that took that kind of discipline, attention, and and teamwork to really make it work. I ended up doing that all through college. I mean, I just completely fell in love with it. And the, the summer before my senior year, I decided that I wanted to actually take it to the next level. And I moved out to Philadelphia and Canada and trained with an elite men's team where I became friends with many, many Olympians and elite rowers and guys who had just won the gold medal in the Olympics and was really exposed to a whole new level of competition. And I have to say, it really, really lit my fire. So that was kind of another one of those catalysts that really took my life in a whole new direction when I came back from that time in Philadelphia and Canada and racing internationally and training with guys that were at the top of their game. When I came back, I knew that this was a sport that I truly was going to do forever. And even to this day, it has really shaped what I do and the people that I'm close with, aka my rowers, that are still my boys and always will be. That has kind of recently, again, come into a few other opportunities where I'm going to be pursuing the Olympics now for the first time, and I'm really, really excited about it. So this sport that I never thought I would make, I didn't even make the team, I'm now pursuing an Olympics. So I'm pretty excited to see what happens next. Okay, okay, hold up. Olympics? More on that in a bit. I'm sure many of you have the same question I do. You know, I also just realized that I didn't even say what a coxswain was. 
I don't know if a lot of people don't know what a coxswain is, but a coxswain is actually the person that sits at the back of the boat, I guess you would say. We sit in the stern and steer and basically tell the boys what to do. We execute race plans, give on-water commands, look out for safety, for other things that are out on the water, and basically run the race strategies and are the eyes and the ears in the command center on the waters. Got to admit, tell someone you're a coxswain and you'll get their attention. We'll get back to rowing in a bit, because like any athlete, or for that matter, anyone pursuing their passion, there's the rest of life that needs to support that dream, which in Whitney's case was equally as fascinating. When I was going to college and I started on this rowing path, I also had to be a student. (laughs) So I actually wanted to go to film school. I ended up getting into a film school that had a rowing team. I went to Loyola Marymount. And I did film production and screenwriting, actually. So learning how to craft stories and getting to go out and shoot films was incredibly exciting. So some of these things were kind of starting to come together for me that I really, really enjoyed and really liked doing. And that was film, sports, and travel. Again, this was kind of another one of those pivotal moments where getting a taste of of what I really liked and what I really wanted to do was really, really exciting. So I went through film school and graduated and, of course, wanted to work in L.A. Um, I was going to school there and pretty much whisked myself right into the film industry where I took some PA jobs and had to get coffee sometimes. And I actually did end up getting some really cool jobs. I worked on The Amazing Race for a long time. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that show, but I became really good friends with Phil Kogan from The Amazing Race, who became an incredible, incredible mentor to me. And it was basically the dream job that I wanted. You know, he he was traveling the world and he was also an athlete. He's an avid cyclist. And we were doing films. So I basically got what I thought were my dream jobs. And I was traveling, you know, I was I was shooting a documentary in France and I was working with celebrities here in LA and getting to do some really, really cool jobs. So it's not like I didn't have fun. But it kind of turned out to be the grind that I didn't necessarily expect. I've got a lot of tenacity and and a lot of energy and a lot of drive. And if there's one thing I can do, it's network. But I was just killing myself in this industry, just trying to make things work and trying to meet new people and kind of get to that next level. But it was like every time a show started up again the next season, if it started up again, I had to get rehired again or start over. And I just felt like it was this vicious cycle where I couldn't really get anywhere, but I was absolutely killing myself trying to make other people's dreams come true and completely ignoring what I wanted to do. And so I came to this realization coming home from a job one time that, you know, it was just incredible. I'd been, you know, scaling the Alps and I was, you know, drinking absinthe in France where it was from and, you know, cycling through the Pyrenees and, you know, exploring Europe and working with these celebrities. On paper, it just looked amazing. And, you know, people were like, how in the world did you do this? How did you figure out how to do this? And, you know, I'm so I'm so jealous and so envious. But really, I was miserable. I was flat out miserable and just kept wondering, like, when is this going to be my project? Like, when am I going to do this for me? Why? Like, this is this is not what I worked for. I don't know about you all, but I love The Amazing Race and Phil Kogan. I actually had a fanboy moment with Whitney on the phone when she said that she knew him. But I digress. This isn't about Phil. And after a while, the glossy veneer of working on such a big project wore off. 
So how did Whitney process all this to take the next step and begin to live the life that she wanted? Through all of this, I really had to put sports on the back burners. Um, I was running at this point and, you know, forget rowing. After college, rowing really took a back burner. And I realized how much I missed being around athletes and why athletes inspired me so, so much. And just realized that I, I needed to put back the things in my life that really made me happy and that challenged me and scared me. And this film work was not doing that. You know, some of it was scary and it was incredibly challenging. It was, it was very, very hard, but in a very, very different way. And, you know, rowing, I realized, was one of those things. And, and sports in general was really one of those things that challenged in a different way and really offered a lot of ROI. So a lot of return on investment there. Um, you know, when you accomplish something in a sport, you know, you and your team see that payback from the hard work that you did. And it all shows on race day, like I said before. And, you know, you get that reward and you get to be around amazing people. And, and the athletes that I knew and loved inspired me so, so much. And I was just never getting to see them. And so the people that were in my life were, you know, they would boss me around or, you know, basically held my career and, you know, when I worked and what I worked on and everything in their hands. And so I completely lost control. And I really decided coming back from one trip that things were not going to be like that anymore. So that's when I decided to basically quit everything, take the plunge, <laughs> went over to City Hall, got a business license, built a website and started my own company. My sole purpose and goal was going to bring sports, film, and travel together into one job, and I was going to do what I was, what I wanted to do and to hell with anyone who wanted to get in the way of that. So that's kind of where I'm at now after a little bit of evolution, but that was a catalyst for some, some pretty amazing doors that opened up for me. And we'll see what was behind those doors in a few moments. But for the time being, she took the plunge and set out to blaze her own trail. Let's hear what this part of her journey was all about. When I started my company, I agonized over what to call it and what describes like who I am and what I'm going to be doing for these people. And so eventually landed on Iron Will Productions. Uh, what Iron Will Productions is adventure and sports, media, photography, and film. So I travel all seven continents doing the most active, exciting, fun adventures that I can find. And I shoot promo and marketing material, I would say primarily for social media now. Again, um, it's evolved a little bit, but people really want social media content. And that's kind of what I specialized in since I was such a good networker. I also applied the networking to the marketing. So I was like, what gets people's attention? You know, how can we get these pro and Olympic athletes out there, the tourism boards? How can we get other people to their countries and, and get people excited about coming to visit? How can I get, you know, more people to sign up for a race director's race or come on a tour operator's trip? And I was like, what would make me want to do these things? And I was like, well, there's really only one way to do this. I have to go on all of these trips. I have to do this. So naturally, wanting to do film, sports, and travel, I basically took the three things that I was most passionate about, the people that I wanted to work for, and built a company around that. And I was like, every project that I want to do, I'm going to do. Every project I don't want to do, I'm not going to do. And I basically just started advertising myself as an executive producer, promoted myself, made some business cards, and eventually people believed me. So 
I really got my first few gigs doing that and just kind of started selling myself as a super, super active, athletic, fit person that could also hold a camera and add a little personality and pizzazz to your marketing material in really, really different ways. So I wasn't doing brochures. I wasn't only doing commercials or promos, but speaking to your audience through what I now call branded entertainment. It really became about the personality of the company or the person that I was creating this content for. And it just so happened that I had to go on some of these trips and, you know, make it work. You have to admit, the concept is compelling. And if you have the flexibility, what a way to enjoy work. And obviously, it was all rainbows and puppy dogs, right? Now, I make that sound really easy, but I have to say, it's incredibly difficult getting people to fly you around the world. Um, I was a little bit naive when I went into my business. Like I said, you know, every job I don't want to do, I'm not going to do. But if you're a business owner, you know that that's not always the case. And sometimes you do have to take jobs that, you know, are maybe less than glamorous. But, you know, I'm, I've become a much better business owner and really learned kind of what my clients actually need and want through some of this. It's really become an exciting evolution going from this naive business owner, you know, that totally took the plunge and I didn't know anything about business. I did not go to business school. I did not know how to do anything and it was terrifying. And so not having a steady job or not having even a steady paycheck, I really, really had to figure out fast how to make it work and what people were willing to pay for. And I'm still evolving and I'm still learning what that is. So every day is the learning process and it's incredibly exciting. Even though it isn't an easy life and you have to hustle like hell to get new clients and stay afloat, Whitney will gladly do it because it's her baby. How refreshing that must have felt for her. So when you think about this landscape, how does Whitney differentiate herself in this world of social marketing and rampant self-promotion? Well, that's where sports re-entered the fray. The one thing that I have to do is remain interesting. I have to get people to want to work with me and sell myself as one of those people that's doing things and that's a go-getter and that's trying new things and is really not afraid to crash and burn. That's really kind of where a lot of this other stuff kind of started to evolve. And by other stuff, I mean the sports. This is kind of where I brought the sports back into it. So once I started my company and needed to remain interesting or what I thought was interesting, I was like, what is going to make people want to work with me? And I was like, well, I need to stay active because I have to be doing a lot of these adventures and traveling. And the places that we were traveling were not like walking around Disney World. You know, it was, like I said, cycling the Pyrenees and it was running in Antarctica and it was doing safaris in Africa and, you know, backpacking mountains in Canada and scuba diving in abandoned lead mines and riding camels in Morocco. And, you know, like those are the kinds of things I was doing. And so once you kind of get your your feet wet and you kind of get a taste of that adventure and that excitement and the thrill, I mean, how do you stop there? <laughs> So it kind of just built on itself, and I was like, now I need to bring the sports back into it. So I really can remain relevant to the people that I really want to work with, which was also athletes. So I was like, okay, I really need a challenge. You know, through film school, I didn't really get to do that much. Um, you know, I was on the rowing team, but I wasn't physically challenging myself as much as I wanted to. 
And so I really started looking for those next physical challenges for myself. And I was like, what's the biggest thing I can think of that I've never done before that I really need to try? And I was like, okay, a triathlon. I need to do a triathlon. I know how to swim. I know how to run. Did not have a bike. So I signed up for an Ironman, and eight months later was doing my first Ironman on a bike. I had no idea what I was doing, by the way. I had to completely figure out, like, how to do an Ironman. Like, I signed up for it and was like, oh, shit, now what? <laughs> so it kind of became one of those things where that was the norm. I started doing that with marathons. I started running marathons all over the world, and I only have a couple continents left to finish all seven of my continents, you know, running marathons on them. So I'm pretty excited about that. And within the last, you know, year or so, actually started doing ultra marathons, things over 26.2 miles. I actually joined a team of women um, at one point, and we took on a challenge, which was also a media job for me, which was great. We ran from Santa Monica, California, to Las Vegas over a few days, so running 24-7 all day, all night, and I really got my feet wet in the ultra world and signed up for an ultra marathon and now signed up for a 50 and 100 milers. You know, I really just keep trying to take on these challenges and these jobs that push and make me relevant to the people that I want to work with, but also fulfill me. And my work with the sports film and travel slash adventure has really kind of meshed together more and more and more over the years. And so now a lot of it has become you know, me running a marathon and filming a promo or filming social media content for a race director or for a tour operator. My work has become my play. And again, it's still all evolving and I have a lot to learn, but I'm in a very unique position where I can do the adventure and the sport that I'm trying to promote and really speak the language, not only to the audience, but I know how to help the client, which is, you know, the tour operator, the tourism board the Olympic athlete, or the race director. I think the biggest privilege through all of this and through challenging myself and really being who I wanted to be and really, really sticking to my guns and being true to what I wanted to do was getting the reward of making my work, my play, as hard as it is and as, as challenging as it is. And a, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that people don't see that's incredibly difficult. But, you know, I honestly feel like the luckiest girl in the world and it's all because I took a chance. Not going to lie. I can't help but be envious of Whitney's endeavor and how she's executing on it. All right. I'm going to quickly pause here. Given Whitney's athletic pursuits, she should totally check out Health IQ and potentially save up to 33% on life insurance because they use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including triathletes, marathoners, rowers, and coxswain. In other words, Whitney. Remember, that's healthiq.com slash I digress for more info. All right, before we move on, I did have one question which originates from speaking to other people about mixing work with their passions. How does Whitney keep things fresh so that her passion doesn't begin to feel like work? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. And the way that I remedy that is I try to make the work what I want my next challenge to be. So if I want to go run an ultra marathon, I'm going to try to think outside the box for how to maybe work with an ultra marathon company and go after it. And I think that there are ways to do that no matter what field you're in or, you know, if you're running a gym, what kind of new 
program do you want to open up or what kind of new clientele do you want to bring in? If you are an athlete or an adventurer, you're always going to be looking for that next best thing or you're going to want to compete somewhere. It's just, it's kind of in our personalities. You know, we're athletes and adventurers and competitors are people that are, that kind of need that fix. So think about what you envision. Like if, if money were no issue, if, um, if clients were no issue, what is it that you envision wanting to do? I think things kind of start to fall into place when you do that. And so the fear kind of starts to melt away a little bit when you think practically about like, well, maybe, maybe what I want to do like really isn't that big of a deal if I break it down and kind of look at a few different ways to do it. And I think a lot of people are really, really afraid to kind of take that plunge. And I certainly am too. I'm afraid all the time. Like, you know, I'm completely willing to admit that I scare myself shitless all the time. <laughs> I really do. But the more you take those chances, the more you train yourself to take those chances. And I think that you get less scared of taking chances or trying something new when you take a step back and look at, like, is this really that big of a deal? Like, okay, so I signed up for my first Ironman. I've never done a triathlon. So what does that entail? And you go through and you make a list of everything that you need to make this work. And I think when you really start actually taking a look at the process rather than just this giant end result, I think that really helps kind of bring people back down to earth. So if you break it down and take it step by step, I think that removes a little bit of the fear. I have to do that too. I mean, I'm not immune. So I just got better at taking chances and caring less about crashing and burning. Train yourself to be comfortable taking risks. Great advice, and quite honestly, you can't start until you take that first risk. So it's been a while since we talked about rowing or the Olympics, which is kind of a big deal. Let's hear how competitive rowing came back into Whitney's life. Every once in a while, I'd get to jump back in a boat. You know, if uh, if a boat needed a coxswain, I would go out and race, but it was so far and few between, and it was such a bummer, and I really missed it all the time. And every single time that I went back, um, and got in the boat or got in a race again, I was like, oh, why this is torture? Like, I really, I miss this so much. Like, rowers are my people. I miss my boys. I miss everything about it. And was like, okay, I need to start integrating this back into my life as well. And I started coaching. So I was away for a couple years as a competitive athlete, but I started coaching boys. And this kind of lit my fire again with the competitiveness and almost felt like I was racing because I wanted to coach varsity boys. So I wanted to make good boys better. And I also refer to even collegiate boys as boys. So <laughs> they, some of these are actually men, but I always call them my boys. I was actually probably one of the only women that was coaching men. So I've always been, you know, one of the only women in a world of men. So I know the boys club pretty darn well. I'm short, I'm loud, I'm competitive, and kind of stood out a little bit. So a lot of the coaches are, you know, big men that were former rowers. And I really had to learn how to stand up for my team, how to fight for them, how to earn their respect, how to be a leader, how to bring, you know, the leadership and the competitiveness into a world where 
you know, I was the outlier. It was always kind of like that in crew uh, when I was actually competing. You know, I was the woman on the men's team. But now I was coaching and it kind of gave me a different perspective. And every day that I would show up to practice, I was like, I just, I just love this. You know, I love being the underdog. I absolutely love it. And so that, again, was one of those things that was like, okay, I need a little bit more of this. Like, if I can be the underdog, like, I dare you to tell me that I can't do something. That really, really lit my fire. And so I took this team in particular that was really terrible when we started. And I, like I said, I'm loudmouthed, I'm honest, and I was like, okay, guys, we're terrible right now. But here's how we're not going to be terrible in this amount of months. You better believe that I about killed myself trying to make this team qualify for nationals and really stood out. I actually got a decent amount of attention from taking this team. I don't want to say zero to hero because that's not true at all, but basically helped put them back on the map and, you know, really earned a lot of respect through coaching and started wanting to race again myself and started looking for other teams to kind of get back in with. So. Through coaching and through the networking and through that process of kind of earning that respect again and kind of earning my way back into the rowing world and also remaining friends with a lot of the elites, the coaches, the boys that I raced with in college, really started bringing everything together. And I was like, you know what, this is just something that I'm good at. Like, why have I spent so many years swimming upstream you know, trying to do all these other things and just getting roadblocks after roadblock after roadblock. And then I, I keep coming back to this. Like, what is this telling me that I, that I really need to be here? And I'm good at these things and I'm good at the networking and competing. And, you know, I'm not afraid to go up against the other boys for this position or to stand up to grown men that have been coaching their teams for 20, 30 years. It just, again, removed more fear. So once I started doing that, I was like, I really need to, to get competitive with this again. And I was still running. I was still doing Ironman, you know, still staying physically active, but weaving rowing back into my life more and more and more, kind of rekindling some of those networks and those people that I hadn't talked to in a couple of years and just kind of getting back into that world slowly but surely and networking with guys all over the world. And it wasn't actually until fairly recently that I found out that some of the Olympians that I had raced with previously actually kind of helped uh, nominate is not the right word, but basically my name was thrown into the hat for consideration for the men's national team, which has never really happened before because this is the first year that women are allowed to race at the world and Olympic level with men as long as we are at a certain weight. So the same goes for the women's team. Men are allowed now to compete as a coxswain on the women's team, again, at a certain weight. When that opportunity opened up and heard how many of my boys and, and men, they were most of them were grown men, <laughs> but they were so incredibly supportive and excited about this happening. And so many of them came to me and said, you have to do this. There is no other person for this job. You have to try I was really blown away and, you know, the support literally from around the world, from Ireland, from New Zealand, Australia, Brazil, Britain, Germany, Canada, guys from all over the world were calling me and saying, you need to do this. And these are not just, 
you know, part-time rowers. These are Olympians. These are national teamers. These are guys that, that mean something and have been there and done that, and they know how hard it is. Hearing that, I I really couldn't say no. And so, you know, I'm I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm really going for it. And I have put other things on hold. My priority right now is to try to be the first woman on the men's team. And it's one of those things where a million stars have to align and a lot has to happen and nothing about it is going to be easy or cheap. You know, I always believe that there's a will, there's a way. And if there's anyone that can be tenacious and not take no for an answer but handle rejection, I I think I'm that person. I'm going to put the work in that I think a lot of other people might not be willing to do and see if I can make it. So <laughs> I'm pretty excited. I'm I'm just going to go for it. Now, most Olympic hopefuls participate out of love of sport and a conviction that they are world-class, which, if you're being considered, I guess you'd have to say that you are world-class. But even then, the road is tough, and the athletes have to pay their way until they make the team, at which point they receive a stipend to help out while they devote themselves to training. So I wanted to know how Whitney was adapting herself and Iron Will to prepare for the rigors and cost of pursuing her dream. One of the biggest challenges with wanting to pursue an Olympics or even a national team. I mean, I'll say Olympics is the grand goal, but even a shot at the national team, you know, knowing that I'm one of very, very, very few, even in consideration for this, is motivating enough. But it really is all or nothing. You can't really be halfway in. This is probably going to require that I move and I will be prioritizing crew races. What I have done is, again, evolve my business a little bit or just take on a few different jobs or approach things a slightly different way. So I have been, for the past few months, setting myself up to work completely remotely so I don't have to rely on, you know, a physical job or just trips like I normally would. You know, should the time come where I have to drop everything and move to an Olympic training center and try to support myself because rowing is king and you don't get paid for that. (laughs) So everything about that kind of travel and and training and food and rent and everything is all on us personally unless you actually make the team. And nobody will know that for a while. So there's a lot up in the air. So you really kind of prepare for anything, which is absolutely terrifying. (laughs) So I have set myself up to work remotely I also work with a company called JL. They are a company that actually make rowing gear for rowers all over the world, so a lot of national teams, a lot of elite teams. And I have been sponsored by them and worked with them for a really, really long time, over 10 years, because I've been part of the rowing world. And they actually just took me on as someone to help them do media and kind of rep the brand a little bit more. That's just one example of how I'm kind of, integrating rowing more into the work that I want to do. So the same thing that I did bringing sports, film, and travel together to start my business, now I'm kind of integrating rowing, travel, and the Olympic pursuit together. Blending those things um, and seeing where I can, dare I say, double dip is really going to be key for me. So figuring out who I can work with that's involved in rowing and who can I do these media jobs for that are involved in rowing that may also get me around crews or get me around other coaches or bring me to a race or, you know, how can I combine forces, if you will, for some of these things. 
that's kind of what I'm doing right now, and that's kind of how I've evolved things a little bit, but also put some trips kind of on the back burner. So I guess for an example right now, a project, a big project that I'm working on is actually a trip to New Zealand. So I was actually invited by the New Zealand Olympic team to go down there and stay with them and train with them and am going to be talking to other big companies, tourism boards, and airlines about maybe sponsoring my trip to go down there and doing some media for them. So that's a really good example of how I kind of bring all the things that I need to be doing into one job. So I can go down there, I can train, I can do the media and do work at the same time. It takes a really long time to kind of make that happen, but it's really the only way. It's all about evolution and being super, super creative, super, super flexible, and then just being willing to put a couple other things that I'm really passionate about and really love on hold. I can't help but admire Whitney's willingness to attack her goals. Before we wrap up, I want to know what the next few months have in store for Whitney as she attacks this exciting and unique opportunity. I would say within the next few months, at least for a move, I think that's pretty likely because it's one of those things where being a coxswain is a very, very, very unique position. It's not like I can submit data to a coach and just be better than someone else. It's one of those positions where I need to earn the respect of the coach and the team and kind of be around, if you will. It's not a gender issue, which a lot of people have asked me about. I can't make it about, you know, being a woman on the men's team, which is really cool, but it's a distraction. So I need to be one of those people that moves up to the training center to almost just be under the coach's nose and kind of be around and be seen. And it could be very out of sight, out of mind, even as someone who's in consideration. I have to be tenacious in ways that also may not pay off. You know, like just moving up there does not mean that I'm on the team. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get to go to the world championships in the men's eight as the first woman to ever do it. It is going to be a long, hard pursuit, really. The the guys are still being ID'd right now for this coming year, so they are going through camps right now for a few months. I will be an afterthought to coaches and staff for at least that amount of time, and I'm taking advantage of that time while I'm not being considered here in the U.S. to set myself up to be racing in as many places around the world with the best rowers that I can find as possible, and that's putting teams together, putting boats together, trying to get spots in some of the biggest races in the world. One of them is in England, one is in Canada, and then taking this opportunity to go to New Zealand and work with them. So that looks really, really good for me and gives me an edge. So while I'm, quote, waiting around, I'm not sitting around. As of a few text messages ago, getting a team ready to race internationally has been Whitney's top priority. I can't wait to see how this all plays out. To wrap things up, Whitney had a few parting words to share. The point that I'm really, really hoping that someone will will hear is that you should try. Like, really, really try because when you take chances that you don't anticipate or you don't think might come up for you, so many other doors open up. I mean, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be on a men's rowing team, let alone possibly going to an Olympics for it. And, and you, you just you can't see that far in advance, and you don't know what kinds of things may come up for you. So you can't imagine what might happen if you're willing to take the chance 
and fail. And I think so many people just get too comfortable and are not willing to take those chances and they're not willing to put the work in that others might that stand out. So I'm I'm really, really hoping that people will think about something that they really want or if they are sitting behind a desk and envisioning a different life, that they really take action on that because nothing is harder to see than someone who wishes that they were doing something else. I am a firm believer that if you put the work in and if you're willing to try and if you're willing to work for something that you really want, then there truly is no stopping you. And I I really, really hope that even if it's a small thing, that people really, really go for it. And don't ever, 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 ever be afraid to fail. What a story Whitney has with a lot more still to come. Be sure to follow Whitney at Iron Will Wit. That's I-R-O-N-W-I-L-L-W-H-I-T on Instagram to follow her journey. Personally, my biggest takeaway from this discussion is to have a process. Remember Whitney's words. If you really want it, you will find a way. Whether you have too much going on or not, if it's a dream, if it's a goal, you're going to figure it out. Break it down step by step instead of thinking of it as this massive goal. That removes a little bit of the fear, and I think it makes it just a little bit easier to digest. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Whitney. Thanks, Whitney, for your time and willingness to share, and good luck. Now go out there and get shit done. This episode of I Digress Podcast is produced by Matthew Petrakowski. Music by Imagine Dragons. If you liked today's episode, please share it with your friends. It would really help.